The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Hey, let's talk about broken lives. Um, hey, let's talk about broken lives. Like, it's all cheerful. Hey, how are you? Uh, broken lives. So um, I'm going to tell you that in the first, uh, first gathering that I, I broke into a bit of Q&A. So if you... If we go through this time and, and there's something you want to say, as long as it's affirming and, and makes me look good, we're going to have an opportunity to, to let you do that at the end of the gathering. So we're going to have a little Q&A at the, at the end of this. I'm also going to tell you that this is probably a, a, a very personal moment for me because I'm going to speak to you from um, the, the rubble of my own life, okay? Here's what I've noticed about God. Um, that many of us will see areas of our life that have been broken or damaged or that we've mismanaged on a regular basis, almost intentionally mismanaged. Could be our sexual lives, could be our finances, it could be some habits, it could be um, we've abused ourselves in different ways, uh, cutting, ingesting, consuming entertainment that's way inappropriate. Um, And so we think that we're disqualified from ever moving forward into wholeness. And if there's anything that Isaiah 6 teaches us is that the very area of disqualification God actually restores and redeems and then makes us almost an expert in it. And we can spot other people's brokenness in that area and then as 1 Corinthians speaks about that we're able to comfort or, or help people get healed in, uh, by the same comfort and healing that we received. So um, God has a way of redeeming everything. So uh, what I will share from you is a lot of what was wrong and broken in my own life. Now, to say that, just, and I'm not playing who had the hardest life, but it was Thursday night. We were in small group at the Shaw's house uh, with the Bible study that we have there. And I was uh, trying to drive home the point that I understand when things go wrong for a long time. And so I said to my wife, uh, would you be honest in this moment with me? And she said, of course not. And so I, I pressed on anyways because her disagreement has never stopped me. And uh, so I said, uh, how many years was it that our marriage was really in the toilet before it got better? And, and so she's so faithful and loyal. She never wants to speak ill of me in public. But in private, I can't shut her up. But, so, but in public, uh, I should have married that doctor. I should have married that doctor. So, uh, so I said, how many years? I said, eight. And she said, well, you know, and she, I, you know my wife, she kind of trails off when she doesn't want to say something. She goes, well, I'm not, I'm not. She's kind of like a soft talker all of a sudden, a low talker. 10, wait, 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 12, closer to 15. And she had to say, yeah, I was about 15 years. And so I will tell you that as, as a person of, of, of incredible, um, really unpredictable violence, uh, self-injury that led me into a hospital and surgery to repair it, um, jail at Hollenbeck Parker Center in Ventura County, uh, court appearances, uh, rubbing up against the law, hooked up in the back of black and whites, uh, crying wife, broken things at the house. I, I can tell you that I understand brokenness. And so a lot of what I'm going to share with you, it comes from that, the rubble of what was a lot of my life. And um, so I'll, I'll speak to you about the things that we can talk about. Let's see, gratitude, humility, and faithfulness. Now, let me start with this. How many of you have ever heard someone tell you, you got an attitude problem? Right? Okay, do me a favor. Keep your hand up. Just raise it and keep it up. If someone said to you, you have an attitude problem. Okay, now, keep it up. Keep hanging up. How many of you have said to somebody else, man, you got an attitude problem? <laughs> Same number of liars and people who are not raising their hands. <laughs> I want you to know there's no such thing as an attitude problem. There really isn't. It's a character issue. It's always character. Your attitude, your attitude, your perspective in how you process life around you and outside of you. And I mean life, I mean your career, I mean the way you manage your money, the way you manage your sexual life, the way you manage friendships, the way you manage uh, your health is, is an outcome of your character because your character is informing all of those decisions. Your character informs every single decision that you make, period, period. And eventually, all these little tiny decisions you make, make you. You know, you, have you noticed that you meet these people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s? You know, 50s, they're old. But people in their 60s and 70s, 
Um, you just, they're, they're, they're happy, they're content, you enjoy being around their company. And then there's others like, are your grandparents? They're just bitter and mean and nasty. And you realize, what? You know, it's because they, unbeknownst to them, have made decisions to become the people that they are. It, it is funny, we, we, we so focus on things that we think we can change, the outside stuff. And, and you know, you want to change your looks, your diet, your hair, get a tat, don't get a tat, you know, whatever you can work on on the outside, right? Now, there's some things that you just can't change, right? You can't change the fact of who your parents are, can't change the year you were born, can't change the color of your eyes, well, I guess with contacts, but I mean, actually change the color of your eyes. You don't, you, get, you don't get to change almost everything about your life, except the one thing that's the most important that we don't look at, which is your character. See, but by changing your character, you do change everything, because your character will absolutely inform, color, influence everything about your life. Now, I want to give you, because uh, I'm a Westerner, um, I'm going to give you like a process step outline. Because isn't that the thing that most people want, right? How does it happen? What do I do? What is it that drives character change? And I, I'm going to tell you what I think some things are not. It's not right information. Because you can have right information and still do nothing with it. It's not powerful emotional experiences, because some of you have had very powerful emotional experiences with God, and you're still the same person, right? And so it's not a number of these things. It, it's a lot of it has have to do with something as simple as gratefulness. And let me take you to a passage here. Let's go to um, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. And even before I, I, I read this story to you, I, I want to point out that at this dinner, dinner at this particular time is a table... Um, I don't know, about this high? And people would, would recline by resting on pillows and eating, so you're, you're, you're almost, ideally, your mouth's at right, the table level, right? You eat with one hand, because with the other hand was used for hygiene, so you eat with the, you know, the right hand, and so you, uh, so you eat this way, so it means if you're laying at the table, your feet are out this way, okay? To eat together, in, in Middle Eastern culture, still now, and, and as much as important it was then, you were saying something significant about food, you know, saying that the, the, the food that nourishes your body is nourishing my body. We're connected. It, it's something very significant that we've lost in, I think, almost the, the sacredness of eating a meal together today. But it wasn't lost then. This is why when Judas is next to Jesus and they're dipping in the same bowl, Jesus was still identifying and reaching out to this man who was about to betray him. It's a very significant thing that's happening there. Okay, so back to this. So that's the setting. Jesus has been invited by a well-known uh, religious figure, and he's sitting at the table, and it says, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in the town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now, again, just to feel this moment, if I say to you, what is the dirtiest part of your body? You know part of the body that we would all agree with, right? But in Middle Eastern culture, it's your feet. And for a woman, her hair was considered part of the, like the pinnacle of her beauty. So you have to see this moment, what the, the, this, this, this interesting interaction. She's wiping with in her estimation, the most beautiful part of her beauty, his dirtiest part of his body. And these tears are not sorrow and anger. This is, this is gonna, I'm going to explain to you at the end of the story. This is out of a grateful heart. Okay? So this is where they're at in that moment. So a very beautiful moment. And then when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is that she's a sinner. So Jesus answered, hey Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose that the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. Now by the way, just let me get the cause and effect correctly. It's not that she loves much, which earns her forgiveness. It's forgiveness that causes her to love much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has made you whole, has restored you, has rescued you, or we use this word, saved you. So go in peace. Gratitude is, is probably the, 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 how many of you guys are gardeners? You guys, any of you garden, plant seeds? You do, really, you do? Okay. I don't. I've heard about uh, uh, my, my, my parents did that thing on Saturdays where they made, my dad made me, you know, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, forced me to, it was essentially like enslaved labor, servitude. I was indentured to these older people who had control over me. But Saturdays, we did what the guys are supposed to do, go outside and fix things, right? Right. I never liked it. I wanted to be like Jacob and stay with the women. I mean, I preferred cleaning indoors. Laundry, dusting, mopping, that, was, that spoke to me. Outside, never did. So what ended up happening is that um, I learned about gardening, even though I didn't want to. But here's the point, that gratitude is the ground where seeds are planted to restore you to wholeness. It is the beginning. It is absolutely the beginning of, of growing spiritually. If a person who is ungrateful, you're just never going to move forward in your life, Period. You'll have moments of, of, of nobility, you'll have moments of honor, you'll have moments of courage, but you are going to be a shriveled soul. That is just how it works. I, I could tell you differently, but it's, then I'd be lying to you and I would not be a good friend. And so it, it, it develops the posture for teachability. It develops the, um, it, it's the fertile ground for seeds of good thought and good, good truth to finally take root. Um, it's where everything begins. Now, the problem is that, well, how do you develop a grateful heart? There's a thing that my wife and I, well, I tease her about because, well, I can, and she's much smaller than I am, and so, um, that is, she's always talked about seeing the beauty in things. And I go, yeah, see the beauty, blah, blah, blah. You know, I always tease her about this. But she's absolutely right. Until you begin to see the beauty of your life or the lives around you and what's been, and what's been given to you, you, you'll just not be a grateful person. Um, I remember that when we lived here in Uptown, um, I, I just had this un, very ungrateful sort of demeanor and attitude toward, about my life. We had uh, one car, I worked out, how many of you know where Woodland Hills is? Okay, taking the bus to work every day for two years. My day started at 4.30 in the morning, I would get home around 7.00 because it was a two-hour bus ride. You know, then it was hot. Just, just. I remember once I sat down on the bus. Oh, this is horrible. It was a pool of somebody else's urine. Didn't even know it, you know. How do you know what somebody else's? Because it wasn't mine. You know? I, <laughs> I didn't put it there, you know. Um, it was just one of those difficult times. And, and for two years, my bus route took me through Skid Row in the mornings into L.A. and then uh, through Skid Row coming back. Two years. I, I was frustrated over the fact that we couldn't buy a home, that I was frustrated in my marriage, I was frustrated because of the kids, I was frustrated because of this, that, and the other, and everything was external. Nothing had to do with my own character. And then all of a sudden it began to dawn on me, wow, you know, I don't own a house, but at least I, I'm not living on the street like this guy, this woman, this child. You know, I'm not eating gourmet food tonight, but I have food to eat. I may not have the nicest clothes, but they're washed and clean. I'm married, my wife loves me, there are people who are married, even if they are fortunate to be in a marriage that they're happy with, they want children, they can't have them. And I have three, and they're healthy. Drive me nuts, but they're healthy. And, and gradually over that two-year period, I began to develop the muscle of gratitude, because sometimes it's just plain effort. And, and uh, it was such a, a, a change the funny thing is, is that oh, it's almost as immediately as I was able to grasp that and actually feel gratitude and gratefulness and thankfulness for who I was and what I had been given and what I saw, the beauty around me, everything began to change as far as terms of my career and financial status. Now, I'm not telling you, like, that's a trick. Like, okay, I'm grateful now, so God's going to cut me loose with some money. I was not thinking that. 
It's just that finally I could be trusted with more resources because if I had those resources before, I would never develop gratitude. I still would have thought what's missing. So the, the more beauty you see, the more uh, loveliness you see, the more you'll be grateful, period. It's just how it works. You see more beauty, you're more prone to love. You see more beauty, you forget about trying to manage what's wrong and, and you move away from managing brokenness to, to, to worship and love the person that can actually heal your life. But and here's how I know a person. Some of you, we've talked, and I know you guys, you know, you, you would probably have to say, oh, yeah, I'm an addict. You know, you're clean, you're sober, but you're an addict. And you know an addict right off the bat. A sensual person knows another sensual person. A thief knows another thief. A depressed person who's come out of that nose can see it in other people. And so I, I know people who are ungrateful. I know people who are unfaithful. I know people who are mismanaging their lives. Even if they come up, they're wearing a suit, we're across in a conference room, a C-level executive, and I'm presenting to them a proposal, a multi-million dollar proposal or a thousand dollar proposal for their business, I can tell by the way they're speaking to me, where they're at. Because I, I know where I was at. And an ungrateful person demands more and celebrates less. A grateful person demands less and celebrates so much more in their lives. They're just plain happier. It's, it's one of those things of understanding I don't deserve even what I get. It's a perspective. In fact, a grateful person, I've noticed, develops that muscle of gratitude, is always looking to give. Who, who can I take care of? Who can I serve? Who can I help? What can I do? Because you know why, what also works in conjunction with this? They don't have fear. And fear always expresses itself as greed and hoarding because I can't give something. I'm going to run out. It's not just money. It's love, time, relationship. So I, I hang on to that because I'm not going to have enough for myself. The person that's grateful recognizes I don't have claim to this anyways. I've been given so much. The person that's grateful views things as, oh, I have so much. The person that's ungrateful is, I don't have enough. They try to hold on to their life. And so when Jesus speaks about the person that wants life but hangs on to it, ends up losing it. And then when he speaks about the person that wants to really gain life and gives it away, gains it. Makes more sense. So uh, gratitude, which I did not have in my life, was the first step towards recovery mentally and spiritually, emotionally. Now, that isn't the fact that everything changed overnight. My wife will tell you, but my point is, is that, uh, that it, was, it was the beginning of the process to, to become a healthier person, and it was um, critical. Now, here's another way I, I know that someone's ungrateful, okay? If you have this thought in your head, if this is, tends to be the way you think, and you can hear it in other people's lives, if you tend to think, uh, the, people are against me. Nobody gets me. Everyone misunderstands me. I know you're ungrateful. I, I, you know, I, I've had this conversation, some of you are in this room right now. I'm not speaking to you directly, sort of, but the point is, is that uh, I'm not gonna call you out by name, all right, Robert, so I just won't do that. No, there's no, there's no, there's no Robert here. There? Yeah, this is Robert, but that's not you, dude. <laughs> I was trying to think of some name that I knew no one was here. And, uh, <laughs> so conversations I've had with some of you recently, conversations I know that I have with myself, just, just life in general, if you're the kind of person that thinks people misunderstand you, they don't get you, the world doesn't understand you, it's been unfair for you, people have lied to you, people have betrayed, I know you're ungrateful. Now you might have moments of gratefulness, but you're ten, you are not a grateful person. Um, and here are some of the things that are going to block that, that gratitude from developing. Um, it's, it's unforgiveness and bitterness. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing like having to apologize for something you've done. I mean, if you're a parent, um, having to apologize for your kids for the way you treated them, even when they're little, because we owe it to them sometimes. That, that's hard. Uh, apologizing to people that are maybe less powerful than you in a, in a dynamic is difficult, but it, if you've done something wrong, you've done something wrong. 
I had a conversation with, with this person not very long ago where I had to point out that, look, I, I know that I've caused this problem. I, I have to own that. But I'm going to ask you for a favor. Really, it's a, more of a help for you. You're going to have to forgive me. Even if we don't reconcile this right now, you need to forgive me because it's going to stop your progress spiritually if you don't. Unforgiveness, bitterness will stop it in its tracks your spiritual progress, your emotional health, period. It'll, it'll freeze out, choke out, pull, kill gratefulness that you're developing. That's the block to a grateful heart, is, un, is bitterness and unforgiveness. So if, if you're the kind of person that thinks along these lines, people don't understand me, people don't get me, this is not fair, those happened, da-da-da-da-da, or you tend to be bitter, you tend to be unforgiving, you know, you're probably not a grateful person. And, um, well, you're going to stop any kind of progress in your life. Um, that's almost, that's almost, I have to say, one of the most critical things to develop. And even if it means focusing intentionally, help me see what I should be grateful for in beauty in my life. You know what? I'll give you a side note. My mom and I have had a difficult, difficult relationship for years. And Paula was the collateral fallout of my father's adultery. And, and so I just went to see her, um, I think it was Wednesday night at, at the hospital. She has a hip replacement. Uh, in fact, she, I think she's going to be here Mother's Day, so you can ask her what an easy child I was to raise. And, and, um, and so she said that the first step for her to forgive me my dad is that she, 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 had a, she literally put it on paper, what I liked about my husband and what I didn't like. And she said I had this whole list of things he did wrong, and just like two or three things what he did right. And then I realized this is, this is skewed. And she worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and worked on it until the list was even. And then she felt God told her that she had to work on it further. So she'd get past. And she goes, it was at that moment, like I put that first thing down that was past the bad list that I was finally able to forgive your father and felt like I'd been released of so much other junk in my life. See, some of you, I, I, I know this. I know this because I'm, I'm human and I'm, I'm in part of the, a part of humanity. Is, is that some of you have been hurt so deeply and scarred so deeply by your parents, by a coach, by a teacher, a priest, a pastor, someone who should have known better, someone who didn't know better, somebody who was just broken themselves. I understand that. But if, you're, if you cannot forgive them, you release your claim to justice, you release your claim to get even, you can recall the event without painful emotion. Unless you're able to forgive them, I'm telling you, it's just choking your progress. And it's going to be harder and harder to be, to be grateful. See, Jesus said that the person that understands what they've been forgiven for will love much. They develop a grateful heart. And that is your first step towards spiritual and emotional recovery and sanity. Let me go to number two here. Um, let's go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 20. Okay, so Jesus is given a parable, which is a, a, a story to illustrate a spiritual truth, right? A metaphor in story form. And this is the idea of faithfulness. And so he goes on in the story and says in verse 20, the man who had received five talents, and I want to say talent is a measurement of money, so you can say $500 or $5,000. The man who received five talents brought the other five. And master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I brought you five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Faithfulness, faithfulness, um, faithfulness. Doesn't that sound like something very head, true, I'm faithful, I know, you know, I just, I'm good. It had nothing to do with that, I guess, at some level. Jesus talks a lot about, and here we're listening to the teachings of this rabbi who, who, who lives today and speaks to us, that when we do well with small things, and the small things are stuff, by the way, that we have earned the right at some level or we have earned the skills to manage larger things which are people. Um, you know, when I think of different um, folks that I've seen in, in, in corporate positions who, uh, man, they just, they just mismanage so much of their personal life, the fact that they're given charge and responsibility over the lives of other people is stunning to me. It, 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 to me, it seems at some level that there isn't a mechanism in any organization that help people with that, sometimes not even at churches, which is tragic. 
there is a responsibility to learn how to manage the small things in your life, and the small things really are your money, your home, your career, your sexual life, the, you know, they're small things in comparison to the lives and souls of people. Now, now, it, it, this is not talking about perfection, but that, that there is at least a skill set that's being developed. And small things, you know, here's what happens. I know for the person that's ungrateful, uh, small things are beneath them. We, um, we tend to, I want to say maybe intentionally, it's almost subconscious now because it's, it's, it's just something I know. When someone is, wants to get involved or help out or new, it's like, oh, how about can you clean this? Would you manage that? It's not a very public responsibility. I tend to know by their response to it where they are as this person. Because if they look at that as something meaningless or unimportant, then I know that they don't see that it has to do with people. Now, at the risk of tooting my own horn and letting you marvel at my spirituality, um, I can tell you that I've been part of other spiritual communities where my job was to clean the restrooms because that's what I volunteered for. Now, I have a thing, by the way, of clean restrooms. So this was false of working out my pain. But it was, I thought in terms of there's a sparkling clean restroom I don't know what else people are going to get worded out over when they don't go to church, but if there's a sparkling clean restroom, it won't be this. They can put their seat on a clean seat, you know? And I love the smell of pine saw in the morning. <laughs> and so, you know, I made sure that thing was spotless, and I actually took pleasure in that, knowing that it had a meaning and a purpose. I'm helping somebody else perhaps feel as comfortable as possible when they come to a different place or a new place, like this church. And yet, I realize that some folks, they see work that they that think is beneath them as meaningless. And they attach no meaning to it. Um, you know, I want you to know that the people, those of you who come to 11 o'clock, there's some people that are here at 7 o'clock in the morning to help get this ready, to get this room ready. Which means that on Sunday mornings, they're starting around 6, 6.15. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not one of them. <laughs> because I was told not to show up anymore. That's how, that's how clumsy I was. I'm that guy that on the projects, they go, get me a hammer. Describe it. Um, <laughs> but how many of you had Hispanic parents? Those of you who are Hispanic, right? <laughs> there's, there's, well, those of you who are not Hispanic, let me tell you, there's, there's some dysfunction in Hispanic families. First thing is that in a house, everything's a weapon. <laughs> if you're in trouble with your parents, you know, you don't go get the switch, young man. It's, it, you could have shoes flying, irons, you know, cooking implements. God help you if you get in trouble in the garage. Well, there's power tools there. Me lo vas a pagar. You know? And, and, and for some reason, Hispanic dads don't like to call things by their English name. Mijo, dame the thing. The thing, pops? The thing, the thing, you know the thing. No, I don't know. And there's pressure, sweat building. I don't know. Oh, but if your friends were here, you know what the thing was, wouldn't you? No, Dad, I really don't know. And uh, so it would be horrible. <laughs> the, one of the things that, um, that, that you can't control is, is the future. Uh, you can't really control it or predict it, but you can create it. See, the thing about faithfulness is that it, it, it leads to perseverance, and that leads to wisdom. Have you noticed that there's just some people that, that you know, the, the, from the smallest thing, like a spider, to a very large catastrophe, they just react large? My car broke down. And you're thinking, oh, well, did you put gas in it? I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, if, if they're overdrawn in their checking account, they made a mistake. Oh, oh, they fall apart. Netflix didn't arrive on time. Oh, you know. Starbucks is closed. Uh, you're like, wow, dude. What do you do in a real catastrophe? I mean, what do you do when someone dies? What do you, what do, you do when there's real brokenness? Come on. This is, you know, there's that cynical part of me that says, man, go to the, the spiritual Home Depot, right? You know, buy some wood, get some tools, build a bridge, and get over it, you know? Move on. And I know what's happening, that there is not the ability to be resilient in a crisis. There's, there's no resiliency which comes out of faithfulness. See, the, the more that you're faithful, you persevere, you, you persevere in meaning that when things get hard to do, you still do the right thing, even when it's hard to do them. 
See, some of you are able to do the right thing as long as it's not hard. Some of you are able to do the right thing as long as you're not tempted. I get that. And then you get to the place, this is right out of the book of James. There's faithfulness, perseverance, slash resiliency, and you end up being a wise person or you're gaining wisdom. And wisdom is this, it's very simple. Wisdom is able to make the decisions right now with the future in mind. Wisdom is making a decision right now, understanding the future outcome. I'm telling you, everything you do right now is going to have a consequence a year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. The way you eat, the way you drink, if you smoke, if you don't smoke, if you exercise, if you're saving money, if you're, whatever you do in life, it has a consequence out there. Always. And this is why the future doesn't happen to us. You create your future. When you think in terms of, when I hear somebody say, I can't believe this is happening to me, which is the future, right? Showing up. I know that person is just not a faithful individual. They have no resiliency. They have no wisdom. And I want to tell them, dude, miss, whoever, you cannot trust your judgment at this time because you don't have wisdom. Faithfulness, perseverance, wisdom. Um, and by the way, here's, here's the block to developing or getting to the place of wisdom is that you just kind of have like a, a victim mentality about things happening to you. You know, I know there's, there's, some, there's some authentically true victims in life, right? Natural disasters, crime, issues like this. But most of us, honestly, we're not really victims. We've just chosen to give up responsibility for our lives. And so things happen to you and you're like, oh, I can't believe this happened to me and I'm a victim. Da, da, da. And I, I know there's painful things that go on. I know there's people that have hurt us. I understand that. I truly do. But in many cases, it just could very well be that this, what's happening, that seems to be on the outside is really an indication of what's going on in here. Develop faithfulness. You'll develop perseverance. And you'll be a wise person. Now, in the first gathering, I made this the second one, and now I want to make it the third one because I think it's really the, one of the most important things. So let's go to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. John 13, this is uh, regarding humility. This is, um, this is the last few hours with Jesus. For, for Jesus, you know, six to ten hours from now, he's going to be in a world of, of pain, right? A world of hurt. And so he's, he knows it. It's coming. So he's going to share some things that he wants these people to know, his, his closest students to know about him and his destiny and their destiny because they, ha they have to share it with other people. Uh, uh, I, I, I found out that part of my death, death obsession came from my mother. We were talking and we were talking about our funerals because, you know, that's what we do with mother and son. And, um, and I said, I go, well, at my funeral, I want to do a video prior to my funeral because you can't do it afterwards, right? It's kind of, kind of quiet. I guess there'd be not much to say. Um, <laughs> weekend at Octavio's. Uh, weekend at Bernie's. Okay, so uh, the point, and there is one, is that I thought of making the video right now when the corpse is not so bad looking and start off by saying, hey, if you're watching this, Something has gone horribly wrong, you know, because this way it's a little bit of a joke and a gag and people will laugh through that. And I would, you know, look down and go, wow, I don't look so hot. Get, uh, you know, what are those flowers on my chest? And all that kind of stupidness, right? And I said, hey, man, look, you know, I just want to tell you guys how much I miss you. <laughs> Not, you know, I'm so happy here, you know, that kind of stupidness. And, and then after laying out all those stupid jokes that you could do by being, speaking at your own funeral would be to... Um, I, see, I do think like this. I mean, I truly want to do this. If anybody's got a camera, I'm down. I'm, I'm going to make this video. But then, see, it would be my last opportunity to speak into the lives of my family and my friends. Hey, do well. Live well. Meet me here on the other side. You follow? So it would be the gag plus, hopefully, speaking to their lives. So my mom said, oh, I'm the same way. I want to do this one thing. I said, oh, I'd be very meaningful and very powerful to do that. So, you know, it's funny. We both think the same way. The thing is, is that this is the moment for Jesus and these men. He's speaking to them on the eve of his death about what's important. And then, I just love this passage because of what it says about humility. Chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast and Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. I want you to catch that word. He knew. He knew. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now this is John's 
view of what Jesus did. This is not Jesus thinking, let me show them the full extent of my love. This is John saying, knowing what he did, who he was, this was the full extent of his love. So this is a slightly nuanced, but it's important. John's explaining what he is observing. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. So he knew that he was all-powerful, he knew who he was, and he knew his destiny. Follow? It's, he's operating out of a sense of knowledge. So what did he do? What would you do if you had all power? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped the towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What would you do if you had power? I mean, you had unlimited power, unlimited checkbook. See, here's what humility is. It's not shrinking back or surrendering power. It's absolutely using all your power to serve others. Humility is using your power to serve others. Have you noticed that, that in some friendships, some relationships, um, there's a dynamic where, for example, um, say Rob and I were friends, and, you know, and, and one of us may be the stronger one? Or, or let me put it this way. In some friendships, you're not the stronger one, right? Some of you who, who said a moment ago, I'm, I'm a 30-year-old man, I'm a 40-year-old woman. I get around my mom, I go right back to that 12-year-old girl. Or if you're a guy, 10-year-old boy. <laughs> So if you notice that, you're just always in that dynamic. I remember having to in intentionally change the dynamic with my teenage children at the time. Now they're full-grown adults. Of I cannot be their father forever. I'm biologically their dad, but I can't be the father thing always. They'll, my kids will always need an adult friend, but they don't need dad where I'm up here and they're down here as kids. I have to release them to become adults so that they're affirmed as people. Now, some of you have friendships that you're always the weaker one. Could be a certain guy. Could be a certain girl. You just you go right back to the level of weakness. Some of you have friendships where it's just always a joke. And you try to break out of that because maybe there's something serious that you need to share with somebody. Hey, bro, you know what? This area in your life, da, da, da. And you can't because you're that joking relationship. This act of humility has to do with power and friendships and relationships. It is using your influence and power to serve that other person. Fully aware of your power and influence and using it to serve somebody else. This is, this is the example of Jesus. Um, in fact, humility is actually being able to be trusted with power over people. It's, it's enough... See, I know guys do this. You know what, ladies, this is a secret. Most guys know women that are damaged. And we will use that at times to take advantage of somebody. And if we have to come across as if we're really a good person to take from them, because we have a little bit more power in that dynamic. It, it, it works the other way, but not quite as much. And sometimes people use their power as powerlessness. I'm always hurting, I'm always wounded, I'm always this victim to control others. And that's the power that they use. So what's funny is that humility is actually using your power to serve others. And so a humble person, here's, here's how I know. They, they just, they don't see anything beneath them. You know, they, they see less and less things beneath them. An arrogant person sees almost everything beneath them. You know what, uh, have, you ever done, have you ever been at, at a job site or at your company and someone says, oh, that's not my job? Maybe you've said it. That's a sign of arrogance. I mean, I know that could not be, maybe it's not part of your job description, I get that. And I work in a corporate environment, that's what I do. But I also know that when it's not, it's the attitude towards it. Because the person that is humble is, okay, that's not beneath me, I'll do this even if it's not your job. Another way I know that someone's not humble is, is how, um, how they maybe push back or blow back when people try to help them. They feel violated when people try to help them. 
They feel violated and uncomfortable if someone knows more than they do. They're insecure about someone having more knowledge than they do. Um, people who are humble don't have to fight for credit. They don't take credit necessarily. They give it away. Um, they just... They use their power to serve and they're not diminished by somebody else benefiting. They're not diminished. They're not worried about it. Humility leads to integrity and integrity is simply what you say, who you want to be, is who you are becoming as well. And that would lead to courage where it's not the absence of fear, it's just the absence of, of you. You don't matter as much. Um, and, and here's the blocks to, to humility. It'll always be a sense of entitlement. And, and yet you've heard people say this. Don't they owe me? Don't I have a right to be happy? Don't I? No, you don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be cruel about this, but what you have a responsibility to is your character. And I know that when characters develop, everything else that you're looking for, you'll find. So uh, a block to humility would definitely be uh, probably a sense of entitlement and a sense of being a victim. Okay, I'm going to stop right here. It seems a little bit abrupt because I know it's kind of getting warm or getting late and people are hungry. But I do want to take a few minutes to have a little Q&A. So if you've been thinking about something, some of you are taking notes, some of you have done this with the eyebrows which means I think you're thinking about it or you're disagreeing with me, you have an opportunity to voice that. But we only keep the good ones on the podcast, so make it a good one. So is there a question or a feedback? Yes, Darlene. Oh, yeah, sure. That, what's the connection between fear and greed? It, it, it's, it's this. Uh, greed is not the... It, greed is just the symptom of, of, a, of, a, of a character flaw. The character flaw is not greed. The character flaw is fear. The fear is I will lack somewhere. And so I have to keep what I have. I can't give it away. You know, so, I mean, I'm afraid that I won't have resources in the future, so I have to hang on to this resource now. So greed is, greed is an, out, um, an outcome of fear. Anybody else have a comment or observation? Anybody want to mint? Yes? You said that gratefulness was a muscle. Did you find that there were growing pains along the way as you tried to build that up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How many of you, Dan, I'm going to use dentists again because it's the, you know, I, I have this unnatural fear of dentists. It's not healthy. I admit it. I'm that guy, but see, I'm also the guy that, that, that I have to do everything big to get past stuff. Like, I have a fear of heights. So, you know, of course, you know what I did is I went to the Bonaventure Hotel. I think it's called the Western now. You know, the elevators that go upside, up, that go up on the outside. I had to, to try to push past it, get into the elevator, facing out, and let it go up. I, I physically reacted to that. I mean, like, my legs started to sweat. I, you know, I lost control of my bowels. It was just... Un <laughs> I'd been banned from the hotel. I, I had a fear that I had a bad tooth. I was just taking... I think I got up to about 1,800, 2,000 milligrams of ibuprofen a day just to manage it. I said, okay... I'm going to die of kidney failure. This, let me just try to go to a dentist. And they said, oh, yes, you need to pull this tooth and this tooth and that tooth. And, that. and we should do this over two or three periods and visits because if it, you know, it's going to be too much pain. Oh, let me stop you here, mister. If I have any negative reaction to this, I won't be back. So let's just do them all at one time. So they took all five out. Um, and I said, I, don't put me out. Just take them out. I'll just take them out. I did not. <laughs> put me to sleep, baby. I don't want to remember any of this. But it's the same when I had, um, I had a double hernia surgery about a year ago, which is proof that you could tear yourself up about doing anything physical. <laughs> By the way, every time my wife notices something about me, it ends up in surgery. I've had three surgeries, because my wife says, honey, that lump can't be right. <laughs> surgery. Honey, do you have a lump here? That can't be right, surgery. It was just, don't trust her anymore. <laughs> don't touch me, you know. <laughs> So they said, oh, well, you know, Mr. Martinez, we're going to go to patch here. We're going to do this. We're going to take this out, cut this loose, you know, color your hair. Um, he goes, but I don't, let's do this in two visits because if we do both of them, it's going to be very painful for you. Oops, stop, mister. Do them both because I won't be back if I have a negative experience. 
All right, I said all that to say the setup. If you're under the assumption that healing spiritually is painless because it's healing, you're mistaken. Has there been any healing in the physical sense that has been painless? When I damaged my hand, there was this another self-inflicted thing, three breaks. They set it with pins and this, and okay, now don't take this off, because it'll set incorrectly. Psst, what do you know, you're just a doctor. Just took it off, and it went back, it was all <laughs> the claw. And uh, okay, we're gonna have to break this and reset it. So I'm thinking, and that means what? <laughs> we're gonna have to break it to reset it. And so they began to wrap my hand around this wooden board, and they literally brought out a wooden mallet. <laughs> I was, it, 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 this is not the America I know. Where am I, Guantanamo? So, uh, so uh, a little political humor. Uh, and so it had to be broken to be reset. See, but here's the thing that's funny, is that, uh, yes, it was uncomfortable, but my point is that Corey, there's absolutely times of pain in health. But it goes back to what we talked about earlier with the Beatitudes. There's times of mourning loss to move forward. And if you're afraid of pain, uh, you're just not going to get healthy in many cases. But it's, it is the road to recovery. Those of you who have been part of CR or other step meetings, there's pain. You're vomiting up some of the stuff that's been painful, you know? Um, so yeah, there's pain. But, but you know what it is? I think that you have to decide which pain is worse, the pain of staying where I am, unhealthy, or the pain of getting better? Because you're gonna have pain either way. So yeah, that's the best way to sum it up. One last question. Oh, two. Yes, Ryan. You were talking about doing things out of humility. How do you find a balance between doing menial tasks out of humility while still focusing on the tasks that you're best at. Okay, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that it seems like a more of a time management question then, or a, a best use of investing your talents and strengths, right? Sure. I, well, personally, I, I, I didn't think that when I was cleaning a bathroom that I was operating in my optimal talents, except that I thought, well, this was, had a value, and, and I attached a value to what I was doing. The reality is, is that, see, you can be a gifted, talented person, but that doesn't mean you have the right character to use your gifts. Uh, let me um, see talents and positive psychology assumes that people have character. So you could have woo, uh, connectedness, input, activator, which I, those talents I have, right? And if I was a lustful, sensual, thieving, destructive person, all those things that I still have those talents could be used in ways that are harmful. Taking advantage of people, developing new schemes. I mean, uh, dictators are very talented people. So uh, there are times and seasons for everybody's life that they do what appears to be meaning, meaningless or, or beneath them. I think that's just developed character. I, I don't, I, talent is not enough. Care, talent by itself is dangerous. So that just means you could be more effective at destroying people. Yeah. I found it powerful that you connected the metaphor of gardening with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus' teaching that it's better to give than to receive conflicts with society's message today. But it helps me consider that I've been given the seeds, and if I don't release them, then they are useless and they'll never develop in the world. Um, most of my, my life has been persuading people to do things that they didn't want to do, because I'm a salesman. And um, my best deal I've ever closed was convincing Lilia to marry me after eight weeks of dating. Because well, I had her at that vulnerable moment, close the deal. My point I'm trying to say is that I, I, as sales reps, I think that's close to the, the farming job that I can think of and having to trust God. Because a, a farmer is a wise person. He's acting in wisdom, even if he's not wise, because he's got to plant seeds, he's got to water, he's got to, you know, um, well, even prep the soil, right, before he puts the seeds in and then take care of the seeds and then do the watering. But he's doing this in the present with the future outcome in mind. Um, I think, Ryan, this might even apply to your question some other things. Corey, as you said a moment ago, look, uh, doing what's right and healthy is not necessarily easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Um, but it's with the outcome in mind. And with, with the outcome in mind, with that clearly in view, um, then you can persevere and have the resiliency to keep pushing through even when it seems hard. So yeah, good question, good observation. 
here's the question. When I was in that broken moment, did I know it? Or is it hindsight? It's absolutely hindsight. And I could tell you that uh, I would blame my wife, my kids, my, my financial state, my ethnic background, my parents. Everybody was at fault for what I was doing wrong. So when I was at the police station getting arrested, somebody else's fault. When I was in the hospital because I injured myself, somebody else's fault. Had you not done this, I would not have done this. So I, it's absolutely, I, uh, looking at that moment, no. It wasn't until uh, I was able to see God's love for me and to gradually develop gratitude that I actually began to hold. I'm looking at this as hindsight. But Simon, you ask a good question. Because of that, when I listen to people speak and I hear them talk about what, how they perceive things and how they process other people, I realize, oh, I know where you are. It doesn't take, it, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out what someone is when I hear their speech. When I hear someone say, that's not my job at work, I'm grateful. They're arrogant. I can't believe you did this to me. Mm, okay, You're, there's not faithfulness here too. There's a sense of entitlement, you know, victimhood. Now, don't get me wrong, we, we do dumb things with people. I totally do, but I can tell a person's speech or reaction to a situation um, where they probably are. Okay, yeah, good question. One more? When you're dealing with someone in a workplace environment and you see that the root of certain character issues is ungratefulness, what do you find is the most helpful way to discuss this with them? Right, is this a person who's a believer or not a believer, you would say? A believer. Okay, well, as a believer, it's slightly easier because you have the context of, of appealing to authority of God and Scripture and all that. But I think the first thing that happens is that you almost have to ask permission. You know, I wonder if I could be very personal with you and ask you, because I've observed this and I may, be, I may be wrong, because, you know, the truth is we could be possibly wrong in a situation. I, I know that you've often said X, Y, and Z, and you just have to put it to them. It's because I care for you that I'm saying that perhaps this is not a healthy, but a healthy attitude, a healthy perspective on life, and it's keeping you from the very things that you want to be, a person that's whole. Um, What's funny is that I would say nine times out of ten, most people don't appreciate that. But they will later. Um, but uh, I, I would absolutely say that if, you, if this is a relationship where you love that person and you feel they love and trust you, that you, at some level they've already given you permission to speak into their life. But I've often asked for permission to speak into their person's life. And then and, and you wait. I mean, the, the, the right word is the right word when it's said at the right time. Because you could have the right word at the wrong time. And it's just, it's, it's brutal. I think this is why Paul says we have to speak the truth in love. You, know, you could speak the truth and it's a hammer. But if you're always loving a person, you'll never speak the truth sometimes. It has to be told. So the, the two have to work together for it to be the, the, the right word placed at the right moment uh, for a person to hear it. So it... Um, it takes patience and sometimes wondering, okay, when, when do I say something? When's a good time to say something? And, 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 uh, and then the taking the courage to, when you sense that God mystically is speaking to you now is to say it. So, hey man, let me pray with you guys and we're gonna have Chris to come up and give announcements. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for, for people that we love and have loved us and have been part of that restoration in our lives. What I pray is that you help us become men and women who are humble, who are faithful, and who are grateful, and that we can ascend into the areas of generosity and courage and, and wisdom. Help us be these people, Father, I pray. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.